title of tonight's talk is Recognizing the Sacred. And this talk was kind of inspired. There's a, I'll begin with a series of three stories. The first, the first story is really the story that inspired the talk more than anything. It's a story from the New Testament. Uh, an East, one of the Easter stories. As you know, yesterday was Easter in the Christian tradition. So this is kind of an odd Easter story. Uh, this is from the Gospel of Luke. And I'll just say that in the Gospel of Luke, before this, the, the women went to the empty tomb. They, they, they found the empty tomb. The angel said Jesus was, was resurrected. They went and told the male disciples, believe it or not, the men didn't believe the women, you know, all that. So people are they're still trying to figure this out in many ways. That very day of the resurrection, two disciples were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation which you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. One of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be be condemned to death and crucified, but we hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, now is the third day since that happened. Moreover, some of the women of our company amazed us. They went to the tomb early in the morning and did not find the body. And they came back saying they had even seen visions of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it was just as the women had said, but they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe, all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He appeared to be going further, but they constrained him, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished out of their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us when he talked to us on the road while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven gathered together and those who were with them, who said, The Lord has risen indeed, and has appeared to Peter. Then they told him what had happened on the road, and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. So it's an an odd story. It almost has this kind of Zen feel of, you know, the the, the master waiting for the disciples to recognize him. You, you might remember in... Um, the, the movie Empire Strikes Back, the way that Yoda introduces himself to Luke Skywalker. He's kind of waits for Luke Skywalker to discover who he is. 
And for Christians, of course, that ending is emblematic. They recognize him in the breaking of the bread because it, it's understood that in the Christian communion or Eucharist that Christ becomes present. Um, but pulling it back a little bit just from the, the, the literal Christian narrative, I think one thing that one thing that this story relates in a way is the sacramental quality of the world. And do we recognize that? And a line that I really love, and they're talking about, you know, as he was talking, our hearts burn within us. You know, how many times, it certainly has happened to me many times, how many times does it happen that you hear an idea or you hear some perspective and it resonates deeply? Your heart burns within you. You know, in some ways, that's the right way for me to live. But then head gets going, oh, but I can't do that. I have, I'm worried about this, blah, blah, blah. And we talk ourselves out of it, you know. I don't know how many times any of you might have had an experience like that. That's that's certainly something that I can relate to. Um, what would it mean to be faithful to those moments that something resonates in the depth of your heart, you know? The second story is also from the Bible. This is from the the Hebrew Bible, what Christians call the Old Testament. And this concerns the prophet Elijah, who's considered like, how can I say, Moses and Elijah are like the two heavy hitters of of the Hebrew Bible tradition. And the prophet Elijah came to a cave and lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to Elijah and said to him, Go forth and stand upon the mount of the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind rent the mountain and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still small voice. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face and went into the cave. And so Elijah is a little more skilled at recognizing the, the presence of the sacred. And it, it's funny, you know, he there's all the dramatic, you know, wind and fire and earthquakes. And that's not where God is. God, God is in this still voice. And I, I think in many ways, if we ask people on the street, you know, what would it mean to get divine guidance? You know, like the stories people would have, it would be like these Hollywood, you know, angels coming down to earth or, you know, voices booming from the heavens. This is how you should live, you know, like this kind of thing. Um, it's often something much quieter and much subtler within us. And it takes a tremendous amount of attention and a tremendous amount of focus even to allow that voice to speak, you know. The third story is from the Zen tradition and concerns the master. The, his Chinese name is Linji. That would have been the name he would have been known by in his life. Um, 
He was later known in uh, Japanese circles as Rinzai, and he had a, a profound effect on the Zen tradition. Uh, Linji, or Rinzai, was, was famous for uh, teaching through direct action. So this is a, a koan involving Linji. Elder Ding asked the Master Linji, what is the essence of Buddhism? Linji, getting up from his seat, seized Ding, slapped him, and pushed him away. Ding stood still. A monk standing by said, Elder Ding, why don't you bow? And as he bowed, Ding suddenly became enlightened. And so he asks this verbal, almost head-centered question, what is the essence of Buddhism? And he's probably expecting a verbal, head-centered, logical kind of answer. Instead, the master grabs him and slaps him. He's completely shocked. And he's still standing there in that moment of shock when somebody else says, why don't you bow? In other words, why don't you actually recognize that the thing that shocked you was the teaching. In the, um, in the commentaries on the I Ching, there's a, a commentary of the Shuo Gua that talks about the, the, the eight Gua, the Ba Gua, the, the so-called trigrams that, that make the I Ching. And it talks about their interconnection and their meaning. And one of them is, is thunder, known also as the arousing or the shocking. Um, it's thought in, in the Chinese cosmology that, that thunder comes up from the earth, and so it's a very ungrounding thing. You know, it's funny, we, we in the Western world, we have this idea that thunder, you know, gets flung down from the sky, from some god up in the sky. You know, actually, in terms of physics, it's just a circuit. It doesn't matter which way you have it running, you know. Um, but there's a sentence in the Shogua, God comes forth in the sign of the shocking. You know, that often, often the way that the teaching touches us is in a way that shocks us, bewilders us, disorients us, confuses us, you know. And sometimes it's only much later that we can look back and say, oh, that thing that completely upset the apple cart, that was the teaching, you know. And then we're able to bow to it. You know, and what discipline it would take, and I, I don't, I would not claim this level of discipline myself, but what discipline it would take to receive the shock and be able to bow to it in that moment, you know. So a few different perspectives on recognizing the sacred in these in these three stories. Um, I'll say in in all these cases, of course, recognition involves careful attention. And the opposite of careful attention is taking for granted. And from the point of view of Buddhism, taking stuff for granted is so sad. Um, You know, in... How can I say, if 
if my if one's goal were to minimize joy and maximize sadness and and misery then taking for granted would be a, a spectacularly efficient strategy for that you know i mean think about something like say the miracle of sight you know if i'm totally taking for granted i'm getting no joy from the fact that i walk around every single day with this absolute miracle but then if i lost it i would be devastated and why didn't i ever appreciate it you know and this kind of thing you know and sometimes they in meditation retreats they'll they'll pose it as an exercise you know what if the doctor said you you'll you know sorry there's some horrible condition you have you're going to lose your sight in a week you know how precious would everything be like the most ordinary things a fire hydrant like any everything would be so precious to see you know and of course the good news is that we don't have anything wrong with our sight and we'll go on seeing but why don't we recognize that as something precious as a miracle the miracle of being able to walk to hear to you know to talk you know one thing that been impressed upon me in recent years the miracle of having two healthy hands a miracle i will never have again you know i hope all of you appreciate that miracle every day you know so it's an interesting question for all of us what are the things we're taking for granted that we shouldn't be taking for granted you know In terms of recognizing the sacred, I'm going to talk about three kind of categories, um, beauty, truth, and love. And all three of these are, you might say, proxy words for God. You know, certainly beauty and love are, are two of the ten sephirot in the Kabbalah. So with beauty, you know, certainly there's the dramatic beauty, the sunset, you know, the redwood forest, the oceanscape, the the cloud, you know, the moon passing in and out of clouds, you know, this sort of thing. But there's all kinds of subtle beauties. You know, the tree reflected in the puddle, the individual bird call, the individual flower, you know, uh, sunlight passing through a glass of water and making a a crazy diffraction pattern. Do we notice beauty? Are we present to beauty? Do we allow ourselves to be touched by beauty? When I was young, I my 20s I lived in New York City and I was a member of the Museum of Modern Art and I would go there often and at least at that time in the the way they had the museum laid out right right off the lobby they had this room where they had three giant panels of Monet's water lilies and it would always be kind of my my procedure when I went to the museum I'd just go and for like 20 minutes I'd sit and look at the water lilies and I'd find that it would help to open my eyes up, open my mind up, and it helped me to appreciate the other art. 
But it would always be funny sitting there. You know, I'd be sitting there taking in the water lilies. And people walk in, look, and then walk away. <laughs> you know? The left brain is very quick. The left brain goes very quickly to, you know, yeah, I know that, you know, been there, done that, what's next? It takes the right brain time to open, time to to really drop in and appreciate what's going on. You know, do we allow ourselves that time? Do we allow ourselves the time to take in beauty? Do we allow ourselves to be nourished by what is there? Now with truth, sometimes truth is beautiful, sometimes it's not, and we're, we humans are so funny, often the truth that I most need to hear is the truth I'm defended against hearing, you know, because if you think about it, any truths that I'm open to, first or second time I hear them, I'm going to listen. Oh, that's interesting. I'm going to get curious. I'm going to explore them. The truth that I am have resistance against, I'm going to get distracted. I'm going to lose focus. I'm going to deliberately misunderstand it. Oh, let me explain why how that doesn't apply to me. You know, like this kind of thing. And then through my avoidance, I'm going to be giving it more and more energy, turning into a monster. In traditional Tibetan tankas, there's an image in the middle, and often, often there's a top row with these shining Buddhas, and they're all peaceful and smiling at the top. And at the bottom, there are these fire-driving monsters, and they're dancing or doing all kinds of contortions. And the teaching is that both are enlightened figures, both the, the Buddhas of light and these dancing monsters. And, and a very simple but profound way to look at them is they're just visual, represent, visual representations of the truth I want to hear and the truth I don't want to hear, you know? And this is often, the truth I don't want to hear often has the only way it can penetrate into my consciousness is when it arrives with a kind of shock, you know, a disorienting shock. You know. I think it's a profound question for all of us at any point. What is the truth I really need to hear that I don't want to hear? And the third the, the, the third sort of category in which we can experience the sacred is love. And how can I say? I mean, taking things for granted is bad enough. Taking people for granted. That, that's, uh, that causes all kinds of problems. There's this wonderful line in um, 
in the famous Louis Armstrong, It's a Wonderful World. Um, he says something like, I see friends greeting each other, saying, how do you do? They're really saying, I love you. You know? Are we really alive to the love in our lives? Are we really alive to all the different kinds of love in our lives? Are we able to receive the love of people we don't know? For example, the love of people who are doing just things as part of their job or part of their profession, you know? I mean, the, the checker at the, the grocery store, you know, the, the friendliness or care that that person has, you know, the, the doctor or dentist who sees us, you know? You know, and these are not ongoing, intimate love in this, you know, in the, the grand sense, but there's love and caring there, you know. How do I want to say it? A few weeks ago when I was... Uh, leading a retreat with students, I was talking about the love of God. And one of the things that I said to them is, you really begin to understand God's love when it frightens you. When you really understand that you are so loved in such an intimate way that that it's confronting, that it's frightening, you know. And the, the Western religions, you know, concretize the sacred as, as a figure, and then this figure is said to love human beings. Um, but in Buddhism and Hinduism also, there's this sense of tremendous love, tremendous compassion. Um, I mean, one way to frame it also is that our, our, higher, our highest self, our greatest self, has tremendous love for who we are now and tremendous love for all our struggles and all our, you know, stumbling toward what we could be, you know. What would it mean to see yourself through the eyes of love? What would it mean to see your struggles and your mistakes and your failures through the eyes of love? So I'll share the quote sheet. The the three stories on the front. And I apologize to the the Zoom people. I don't have a soft copy of the the quote sheet. You can can log on to the... um, Later tonight, I'll upload the talk and you can get the quote sheet online. 
So Henry Miller said, every moment is a golden one for him who has the vision to recognize it. Helen Luke said, we hurry through the so-called boring things in order to attend that which we deem more important, interesting. Perhaps the final freedom will be a recognition that everything in every moment is essential and that nothing at all is important. Viktor Frankl, who, who lived through years in a concentration camp, said, ultimately man should not ask what the meaning of life is, but rather sh- must recognize that it is he who, who is asked. In a word, each man is questioned by life, and he can only answer life by answering for his own life. To life, he can only respond by being responsible. You know, what is the statement we're making with our life? That astonishing man, Thurgood Marshall, said, in recognizing the humanity of our fellow beings, we pay ourselves the highest tribute. Paul Bowles said, I suppose the trouble is that one thinks one's life instead of living it. Occasionally one enters into contact for a split second when the wind blows across one's face or when the moon comes out from behind a cloud or a wave breaks against the rock in some particular way which it would be impossible to recognize or define. Then one catches oneself being conscious of the contact and it is lost. You know, what would it mean to be faithful to those moments? The Dalai Lama said, very simply, let us try to recognize the precious nature of each day. Barbara Brown Taylor said, human beings may separate things into as many piles as we wish, separating spirit from flesh, sacred from secular, church from world, but we should not be so surprised when God does not recognize the distinctions we make between the two. Earth is so thick with divine possibility that it is a wonder that we can walk anywhere without cracking our shins on altars. The poet David White, this is, this is something he said during a, a seminar during the pandemic. Now we tend to think of invisible help in a religious sense, you know, and if we're non-religious ourselves and don't use the nomenclature of God or of any of our heritage religions, we, think to, we tend to think of invisible help as some form of superstition. But if we are religious, we tend to think in terms of angelic realms or the parallels. If we're instinctively mythological, same thing. But it's really interesting to think of invisible help in a very, very practical way. Invisible help is the help that you have not as yet recognized that you need. Invisible help is the help that you have not yet invited into your life. And in order to invite invisible help into your life, you have to be right on the edge of who you're becoming. You have to pay scintillating attention. Arjuna Arda said, we all have been touched by grace at one time in our others, in our lives. Sometimes we recognize it, sometimes we don't. Khaled Husseini said, 
They say find a purpose in your life, but live it. But sometimes it is only after you have lived it that you recognize that your life had a purpose, and likely one you never had in mind. And the Zen teacher Pat Enkyo O'Hara said, When you are willing to be intimate with what actually is here now, to look directly at all of our experience, we might recognize that this is our life, however different from our thoughts and our ideas about it.